Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to the partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even for the forgiveness of sins. Good morning and welcome again. We're grateful for your presence. We're always thankful to have the opportunity to be together. We're grateful for our visitors and we want you to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you have. We're going to be looking today at Colossians chapter 1. I apologize for the quality of my voice. I've been battling a cold the last few days. I really thought it would be over with by now, but it's tough getting rid of a summer cold. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 down through verse 23. I want us to think about the theme, Jesus is my everything. The song that we sang just a moment ago reminds us of this fact, that Jesus ought to be everything to us. There are a lot of interesting characters that you read about in the Old and New Testaments. But one of the things that strikes me about the life of the Apostle Paul, and Paul wrote the book of Colossians, is the fact that for Paul, Christ was indeed his everything. In Philippians chapter 1 at verse 21, Paul would say, for to me to live is Christ. I think when you look at the life of the Apostle Paul and you begin examining where he had been and then what he became, you can understand why Jesus was his everything. When you and I evaluate our lives in light of the cross and we think back to what we were, in comparison to what we have become, doesn't it stand to reason that Jesus ought to be our everything? If Jesus is not your everything today, then my encouragement would be for you to consider what the Lord can do for you in this life. I want to suggest to you that as we look at Colossians chapter 1, there are some reasons why Jesus ought to be our everything. Number one, because Jesus is the one who redeems us. As we look at verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul talks about the redemption that we have because of what Christ has done for us. Typically when we think about the redemptive work of Christ, we accentuate the pardon that comes to us through his cleansing blood. As we think about the basis of our redemption, I would remind you that it is because of the blood of Jesus. Listen to what he said in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us that Jesus shed his blood 
so that we might enjoy the blessings of redemption. In Revelation chapter 1 at verse 5, John would say unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells us that Jesus redeemed us not by corruptible things, but rather by his own precious blood, as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. And then in verse 20 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that the Lord has made peace through the blood of his cross. If you go back to the Old Testament and you look at all of the sacrifices that were offered, first under the patriarchal system, and then secondly under the Mosaic dispensation, all of those animal sacrifices prefigured the ultimate sacrifice for sin, that is the blood of Christ. The Hebrew writer tells us in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so the basis of our redemption is the blood of Jesus. But then I want you to see with me in the second place the blessings of our redemption. And in verses 12 through 14, Paul isolates some things that have taken place on our behalf because of what Christ did at Calvary. First of all, Paul said that it is through Jesus that we have been qualified, or to put it another way, he qualifies us. Listen to him in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. What does he mean when he says that Christ has qualified us? Well, I think about people that want to buy a home. And there are steps that have to be taken in order to get a loan. One of the things you do, you qualify, you pre-qualify for a loan, don't you? If you meet the conditions that are set forth in that qualification process, what happens? The bank gives you money to buy a home. Well, the terms of admission into the kingdom of God are set forth very plainly in the New Testament. The Bible tells us that we have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that we are to repent of all of our sins, just like they did on Pentecost Day in Acts 2.38. We are to be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away, according to Acts 22.16. When we do that, what happens? We're qualified to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, we become a recipient of all of the blessings and favors that are set forth in the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul talks about all of the spiritual blessings that we enjoy in Christ. Those spiritual blessings are imparted to us when we obey the gospel. So number one, he qualifies us. Number two, he delivers us. Look at verse 13. Paul said he has delivered us from the power of darkness. When we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are delivered out of that spiritual sphere that is dominated by the devil. We are delivered out of the power of darkness. In other words, we're no longer under the reign of the devil. He's no longer in control of our lives. 
Not only are we delivered out of the power of darkness, but the Bible says he qualifies us, he delivers us, and he translates us. You see, we are delivered out of one sphere and we are translated into another sphere. We are translated into the kingdom of the son of his love. When did the kingdom come into existence? Well, the Bible tells us that it came into existence when Jesus died on Calvary's cross. In other words, it was purchased through his blood. It began on Pentecost Day, according to Acts chapter 2. And those of us who obey the gospel, we're delivered out of that sphere of darkness and we are translated into this kingdom. Why is it so imperative that we, be, that we be a part of this kingdom? Well, first of all, because Jesus is the king of the kingdom. Wherever Jesus is, we want to be. He is also the savior of the kingdom. In Ephesians 5.23, the Bible tells us that the saved reside in the church of the kingdom. And so we are placed in a saved condition. The word church or ecclesia means the called out ones. We have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so we enjoy a whole new relationship. And then there's a fourth thing. The Bible says he forgives us. I want you to think about your own life for a minute. Some of us, when we reflect back on our past, no doubt there are things that we have said and done, maybe places we have gone that we're not particularly proud of. The beauty of forgiveness to me is that no matter what I've said, no matter where I've been, no matter what I have done, the beauty is knowing that God will forgive me. When Paul wrote to Timothy, and Timothy was his own son in the faith, Paul described himself as the chief of sinners. And I think what Paul was saying there is, if you want to know what a sinner looks like, then just look at my life. There are a lot of people in our world today, they have the idea there is no way that God could ever forgive them. What I would say is that's the devil's lie. What the devil wants you to believe is there's just no way that God in heaven would ever wipe your slate clean. There's no way that God would ever forgive you. I mean, after all, you've done too much. You've been too many places. You've said too many things. There's just no way a gracious God in heaven would ever want to have anything to do with you. Well, think about this. If we were perfect people, we wouldn't need the Lord, would we? We wouldn't need the cleansing blood of Christ. We wouldn't need the church. We are imperfect people. We stand in need of forgiveness by a gracious God in heaven. Now, Paul said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul didn't say that the Lord would just forgive a few sins or some sins. The Bible tells us that God has the ability and the willingness to forgive every sin. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 is probably 
one of the mountaintop scriptures in the New Testament. And the reason is because it assures us of the blessings of forgiveness. The writer talks about, and he goes back and quotes Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet foresaw the new covenant. That is, he foresaw a day when God would send his son to redeem the human family. And he said, under that covenant, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. That's the covenant we live under. When God says he forgives, then he forgives. Now it may be the case that we have difficulty forgiving ourselves. That's a whole, that's a whole, I guess that's a whole nother subject. But God will forgive. And so that's what Paul is saying here. The Lord Jesus Christ, he qualifies us, he delivers us, he translates us, and he forgives us. There's a second thing that I want to call your attention to as we look at our lesson text. And this is found from verses 15 down through verse 19. And the idea here is that Jesus is the one who reigns over us. First, I want you to think with me about his preeminence. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. When we talk about Jesus, we're not just talking about a mortal man. We're not talking about your average, ordinary person. We're talking about the Son of God. We are emphasizing the deity of Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man. In Colossians chapter two at verse nine, Paul said, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ, as the second member of the Godhead, left heaven, came to earth, was clothed with mortal flesh so that he might redeem us from sin. But when we think about the deity of Christ, note if you would that word firstborn. Typically when we think about the word firstborn, what comes to mind is the first to be born. What this word signifies is that Jesus is was an uncreated being. No one created Jesus. Furthermore, it emphasizes his priority to and preeminence over creation. Jesus is God. Now the Bible says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14? Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is a perfect demonstration before all of humanity of Almighty God. And so he carries all of the attributes 
of God. We talk about his preeminence, but I want you to see his power because his power underscores his preeminence. Note now, first of all, his work in creation in the physical and in the material realm. Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So what did Jesus create? Well, the Bible tells us he created all things. When we look at the material universe, those things that are visible to the eye, those things that are invisible, for example, the oxygen that we breathe. Who created that? The Lord did. How do I know that? Well, Paul said that he did. John the apostle, and John had the opportunity to spend three and a half years with the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus was the agent by which the world was made. He is also the one who made man. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26? When Moses recorded the words, let us, plural, let us make man in our image and in our likeness, the Godhead. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, all were involved in the work of creation. And so Jesus Christ demonstrated his power by what? Well, one way, by his work in creation. The physical realm, the material realm. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. In chapter 1, the Hebrew writer stresses the superiority of Jesus over the angelic world. And he said, And you, O Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. So the Lord is the one that made the world. But then I want you to see his power in the spiritual realm. Not only was Jesus at work in the physical and material realm, but he also exercised his power in the spiritual realm. Note now verse 18. Paul said, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The word beginning is an important word in verse 18. Now, Paul said that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. We know the body and the church are synonymous. But he said that the one who is the head of the body is also the beginning. The word beginning here means origin, active cause, the source from which something came into being. 
What Paul is saying is that the church originated because of Jesus Christ, because of his work. Now, granted, God in heaven is the one that was the architect of the redemptive plan, and the church was a part of that redemptive plan. Jesus was the agent by which that redemptive plan was executed. And in executing that redemptive plan, Jesus went to the cross and shed his blood. The blood of Jesus purchased the church, according to Acts 20, verse 28. Now we talk about Jesus being the one who started, originated, founded the church. Listen to him in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus said, and I also say unto you, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now Jesus made that statement based on the, on the confession that he was the son of God by the apostle Peter. You see, Jesus had come into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked the question, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter affirmed Jesus to be the son of God. Based on that good confession, Jesus said, I'm gonna build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And so the church was built by the Lord, it was bought by the Lord, and he is the one who reigns over it today. He is the head of the church. As the head of the church, he regulates the conduct of the behavior of the church through his word or through his will. Now, there is a third thing I want you to see in our study, and that is Jesus is the one who reconciles us. We said he's the one who redeems us. He is the one who reigns over us. And he ought to reign over us. After all, he's our creator. He is the one who has created the material universe, the physical universe, mankind. He is the one who has created the church in the spiritual realm. He governs us by his word. But now we think about how he is the one who reconciles us. So, in verses 20 through 23, we want to talk about this reconciliation process. When people, when people need reconciliation, what does that suggest? That there's discord. That somewhere along the way, two parties have become estranged or alienated. Well, first we think about the state of sinners. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in verse 20. Well, look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. The word I want you to see is alienated. That is the state 
of a sinner. Those who are outside a covenant relationship with God, they are alienated. They are estranged. In other words, there is not, there is not a relationship there. There is, there is enmity, if you please. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2, the Bible tells us that sin is what separates us from Almighty God. And so those who are outside of Christ, they are alienated. They are without hope, without God in this world, as Paul would suggest in Ephesians 2, verse 12. They're, they are out of fellowship with one another. They do not have fellowship with one another. Why is that? Because of sin. The Bible says that sin is a problem that the human family has. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But through Jesus and through his work on the cross, those who have been alienated, estranged, can be reconciled. So now I want you to see with me the state of the saved. First we think about our reconciliation through Jesus. Look again at verse 20. By him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who once, all who are outside of Christ, they're alienated. Those of us who have obeyed the gospel at one time, we were what? We were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul talks about the work of reconciliation on the part of Christ. And he said that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Jesus emptied himself he came to this earth, took upon himself human flesh for the purpose of reconciling fallen man to Almighty God. Now we said that those who are outside of Christ, they're alienated, they're estranged, but now in Christ, what happens? They're reconciled. They're brought together. And so we're reconciled through Christ. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 16 that Christ reconciled both Jew and Gentile in one body through the cross. The place where reconciliation occurs is the church. We're all brought together in this one spiritual body. But now what about our reassurance in Christ? Look at verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. That's hard to fathom especially when you look at your life prior to obeying the gospel. Think for a moment about Paul. Again, Paul said that he was the chief of sinners. Here's a man that was out persecuting Christians. Some were put to death under his watch. And Paul is saying, I can one day stand before Almighty God when that great and final day comes, based on the work of Jesus, I can stand before the Lord holy, blameless, and irreproachable. I don't know about you, but that ought to be reassuring. It is to me. 
When I think back over my life, there are a lot of things that I said and did. There are places that I went I'm not proud of. But I know that through Jesus Christ, those things can be forgiven. They will not be held against me. And I have the assurance that I can stand before the Lord one day pure and just in his sight. Now, note verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Those of us who are living a Christian life, as long as we are striving to be faithful, steadfast Christians, the assurance is we have a home in heaven. Are we going to stumble and fall? Absolutely. Why is that? Because we're not perfect people. But we have the assurance that as long as we're walking in the light, we're doing our best, the blood of Jesus constantly works in our favor. 1 John 1 verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now I want to ask you this question. Is Jesus your everything? He ought to be. You know why he ought to be your everything? Because he's the one who has redeemed you. He is the one who reigns over you, and he is the one who has reconciled you. It may be the case that Jesus is not your everything right now. And as a result of that, you now see the need to make him your everything. Could I encourage you today, if you're not a Christian, to come to Christ? When you read the story of the gospel, over and over again, the invitation is come. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. The promise is I'll give you rest. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't love you. The Bible tells us that God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 at verse 4. God has done his part. The invitation has been extended. It's up to us to act upon it. Would you come today in simple trusting faith, believing Jesus to be the Son of God, repenting of every sin, and be immersed in a watery grave of baptism? Do what they did on Pentecost Day. When you do that, the Bible says you'll enjoy the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. God will add you to the church, Acts 2.47, and you will enjoy the quality of life defined as eternal, 1 John 2, verse 25. If you're unfaithful, could we encourage you to come home as we stand and sing?